You know, I'm struck by the discipline of worship and the words that we say in the context of our liturgy, including the words that we said right here at the end of this gospel reading. Praise to you, Lord Christ. And sometimes we say it and then say, okay, now we need to hold on to figure out why I would say praise to you after hearing those words. Hopefully, though, by the end of this sermon, you'll hear the good news that's inherent in the difficult gospel reading that we have this morning. I do, however, want to start with 1 Corinthians, this brief little passage that we have in this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. When he is um, speaking rhetorically, of course, because he's writing a letter, so there's not a dialogue, but he's speaking to that congregation about the resurrection of Jesus, on which they all agree. They do agree that Jesus was raised from the dead. But the question is, what does that mean for me and my life? What relevance does that have for me and all creation? What's the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead? Now, in the time period in which um, we're looking at this church in Corinth, the Greek and Roman view was that there could be a resurrection. I mean, they were kind of all on a spectrum. And there were people that thought it was impossible, but there were people that thought it could be, you know, kind of in a miraculous, um, random kind of way. If you look at the Hebrew scriptures, in the first part, there is evidence of the resurrection, but it's a singular occasion. It happens to one particular person at one particular time. You find these stories in First and Second Kings. The story in First Kings, um, Elijah is with the widow at Zarephath, and her son dies, and he lays on her son and brings him back to life. So there's one example of resurrection. It's for a singular individual at a singular time. In the, the later parts of the Hebrew scripture, we do see evidence of a future resurrection for everyone. You hear it in the writings of Isaiah and in Daniel and Job and Ezekiel. So it's something that will happen sometime in the future, and it will be for everyone, all God's people. Now, Paul sees a direct correlation between Jesus' resurrection and the salvation of all creation. In Jesus' resurrection, he sees it directly linked to the saving of all creation. The future event which will happen, all things being saved, has begun in the here and now, in new life in Christ, but it hasn't been actualized yet. When we study 1 Corinthians, we can see that it's possible that some in that church may have taken Paul's understanding of salvation to already be happening now. And they spiritualized it, saying, I am saved, and I feel saved, and there's evidence in my life that I'm saved. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing. This idea of spiritualizing salvation, that it's only about me, and reflecting that in my life only in the here and the now. The problem with doing such a thing is it causes us to be, um, at best, blind and apathetic to the needs around us. And at worst, it causes us to be hard-hearted and indifferent to the needs around us. You might think about some of the people that you've seen or heard, either in the news or on um, television or maybe even in their writings, that proclaim a salvation, their own salvation, that they are indeed saved, but they seem completely oblivious to the needs of those around them, the vulnerable and the outcast, the marginalized, even in our own society. And they seem completely hard-hearted about responding to those very needs. And this is the problem that Paul has with the church in Corinth, at least some of the folks there. They had spiritualized 
salvation, claiming it for the here and now, and were seeking to live a life that showed, indeed, that they had been saved. One way that we see this in our own culture in this day is in the prosperity gospel. This idea that if you are saved, then God will bless you with all kinds of riches here on earth. And um, you would recognize this, although I can't recall any particular proclaimers of this gospel. But you've seen it, um, you know, on TV shows or um, evangelists who want to tell you to send in your money because God will bless you and you will have riches beyond your comprehension. This idea that we can have all the wealth and the goodness that God has to offer us in the here and now. There are so many things wrong with spiritualizing salvation as um, a primarily spiritual as opposed to actual, like us all actually being saved, for the old world to fall away and for a new world to be made new and all in, of us in it. There are so many things wrong with personalizing spiritualization, each of them only slightly different from the other, that we could spend hours here looking at each variation of um, error in this way of understanding. But since this is a sermon, I'm just going to choose one. The idea that salvation is something that is personal and is here and now. And the one that I'm going to choose is meritocracy. This understanding that we get what we deserve. And what we deserve we have earned. One quality of the Euro-American culture is that we fix things. This is a part of the Euro-American culture. We value fixing things. We prioritize fixing things. We evaluate ourselves and others on their ability to fix things. This isn't a fault. It's simply a cultural practice and a cultural value. And our, um, the thing is, we need to recognize it. I remember hearing once um, an Italian speak about, why did everyone need to get to the moon? Like, what's the big deal about getting to the moon? Well, as Euro-Americans, we thought it was really important to get to the moon. We could see the moon out there, and we were going to get there, and we were going to beat everybody else to the moon, putting a man on the moon. But the Italians were like, do we need it? I mean, what's the important part of that? That's an example of our drive to fix things. But each of us knows the experience of when our best efforts don't bring about the desired income. And we're challenged on this idea of meritocracy, that we will be rewarded for our efforts when even our best efforts don't bring about the desired outcome. Here are some examples. You work really hard on your marriage, and it still falls apart. You do all the right things in regard to your health, and yet you have an event that happens that challenges that health and sabotages it. Cancer, maybe some other disease. You take all the right courses and you study hard for the test and you apply to the college of your choice and you don't get in. You do all the requirements for a particular position and apply for the job and yet you don't get it. You follow all the rules and yet it happens that you become the victim. When these things happen in our life, in a system of meritocracy, everything is challenged. We start to wonder who we are or what we're about. And we also start to wonder who God is and what God is about. Because we, as being people, project onto God what we value. And as people who value fixing things, we look to God to be the supreme fixer of things. 
But where is God when it doesn't turn out right? It challenges our very understanding of who God is. And our gospel lesson today challenges our very understanding of who God is. We wonder what it means to be when we're not being by fixing things. We expect God to fix things. We expect God to reward us according to our efforts, but not according to our sins, please. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus challenges this very assumption. Blessed are you, he says. And he talks about those that are blessed, and you can see the suffering and the vulnerability of them. But Jesus says you are blessed because you're going to know the salvation of God immediately and later. You're ready to receive it. You have nothing that is a barrier between you and receiving it. So it comes quickly to you, now and later. You are like a tree beside a stream whose roots are in the water. And that's, that's how you will know your salvation. So he goes on to say woes. Woes to the rich, of which we are all a part. I hope you remember that. I heard some statistic, and you can Google it since I'm not going to quite get it right, but something like anyone who has two pairs of shoes is richer than like 90% of the world. It's some humongous number. Well, guess what? I have two pairs of shoes. I actually have more than two pairs. I'll just confess to you right now. And every single one of us does. We live in the richest county, in the richest country in the world. So when we hear these words of Jesus, we want to open our hearts to say, what is it you're trying to call our attention to? What is it you're inviting us into? I've kind of translated um, Jesus' words with these woes. Woe to you for thinking that your salvation is in this world. Woe to you for thinking that salvation is in your control. Woe to you for thinking that salvation is personal rather than universal. These are the questions that we can consider to what extent we do each of these things. We often think of salvation as personal. Am I saved? We'll hear people ask that question. Am I saved? And what does that mean to be saved? Listen to the self-centric focus of that question. It's about me. Perhaps we can consider some other questions. Am I allowing God to save me? Am I putting myself into God's salvation? How am I being saved with all creation? How am I caught up in the saving acts of a living God? How do I reflect my confidence in this universal salvation through my very own life? I've had the privilege in my sabbatical time and the particular week I spent in my studies in my week intensive, um, and in, in, I'm pursuing a doctorate in contextual leadership, and um, I'm in a cohort um, of Protestants, of which I'm the least Protestant, I've come to realize. I'm in there with Baptists and Presbyterians and a non-denominational or two. And um, it's really been eye-opening to me of how I experience and relate to God and how the people that I'm with do so as well. 
But what has been so profound to me is God's immediacy to a couple of the people in my cohort. One is a woman who grew up very poor, and she spoke of an experience. We had to tell our stories, our faith stories, and she spoke of an experience when she was four, and she was in the kitchen with her siblings, and a pot of boiling water poured on her, causing three-degree burns on her face and on her upper body. And at that, my mouth, my jaw fell open, because in looking at her, her skin was as clear as mine. And she said, I don't know how I came through that in the way that I am now. We didn't have any health insurance or anything to address this. I, all I can think is that I had a praying grandmother, and she got clay from under our house, and she put it on my skin. To hear this miracle... Does that absolve us from fighting for health care for people? No. The fact that Jesus can save us and is in the act of saving us, starting even now, calls us into living into that salvation. Another story was from a colleague of mine who is South Korean-American. And in his young adult years in South Korea, he did what all young men do and came into the military. Now, he had become a Christian in his high school years, and this was a dangerous life to be a Christian in South Korea. He, it was all under, underground, the church was, um, because it was, you could be threatened for being a Christian. And it was also shameful to his family, so they didn't want to have shame brought upon them in this shame culture. So um, when he went into the military, there was hazing and all this that went on to help masculate all the military men, and they told this man, my colleague, that what he would need to do. He would need to be drinking and having women and all of this, and he said, no, I won't do that. I'm a Christian. And he was beat up and almost died. Broken ribs, internal bleeding, swelling on his face and head. He came through that and still stood his ground that he wouldn't participate in the masculating um, activities of the military. He suffered again some form of physical abuse on his face and had had swelling, and it so happened that during this time, some higher up in the military, I'll just call him a general because I don't understand military hierarchy, but to emphasize my point, somebody really big high up came to his unit and noticed the swelling on his face and asked him about it, and he said nothing. And this general asked him a second time to explain what happened to him, and he refused. And a third time the general asked him, and still he refused. A day or so later, the general left, and shortly thereafter, um, one of his delegates came and asked for my friend to come and serve this general. And my friend said, no, which actually isn't one of the optional answers. (laughs) He felt that he had been called into this unit to share the love of Jesus, and he was going to stay. And believe it or not, they accepted that answer. No suffering came to him for giving that answer. He said one night he was sleeping in a big room where there were 40 cots or so of all the men that were sleeping, and there was a guy who would walk up and down the aisles of the open room to make sure everyone was behaving appropriately and not doing anything. And 
And my friend asked if he could go to the bathroom, which you had to do, and so the guy let him. And he said, I went into the bathroom, and I cried, and I prayed that God would show me what to do to share the love of Jesus with my unit. He said, I came out, and the general, or the, the guy who was, you know, walking in the room said, that took a long time. And my friend said, yes. And he went to sleep. Things unfolded, and he was able to share the love of Jesus with his unit. And he said, to this day, this is the only unit in the South Korean military that has a Christian chaplain. What do you say about that? Look how God comes near, but does that mean we don't fight for eradication of war? Or that we don't fight for human rights and civil, civil ways of engagement? Well, no, of course it doesn't. But what we see here is that God immediately comes close to the vulnerable and the outcast and the marginalized. That's where God always goes. And that's God's priority because God is God. And for God, the last are first. And so Jesus reminds us in our gospel today that our salvation is in him. We can't earn it. Not by praying hard or hoping to have a grandmother who knows how to pray hard so that we can be healed. We can't earn it by, by, by doing all of the right things. Our salvation is given to us, and Jesus has given it to us. This is hard for us to realize and to accept. We don't need to earn our salvation. One of the things that I love about the Christian faith is that we are reminded of our salvation in Jesus and the gift that it is to us, I know of no other religion that shows this relationship. So many religions are built upon a meritocracy, and it actually does something. It makes us feel good to think that we can check it off the box that we've lived right until it all goes wrong, which it does. We have been given, in grace, our salvation, and we are invited, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, to live into that, it's not here and now. It's going to come. And we, as the church, are the prom we carry that promise and that hope. I remember when I visited the Reverend Dr. William Barber's church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, on my sabbatical. He said to the people in the congregation, he said, we're not in heaven yet, but we know that it will be. We're in the middle. And indeed, there were people in that congregation who proclaimed how God had changed their life in Jesus. So that's what we're invited to do, my friends. It's not woe to us that we're rich because God has a vendetta against us. It's that that's not where God is. God is the living stream. And we're invited to let our roots go into it. That's what it is to live in grace. To be beside the stream and to allow our roots to go into it so that we are fed by the saving grace of God in Jesus. That's what we've been given. That's all that we have to receive. And by doing so, we proclaim the hope that, that we know in Jesus. Amen.